0: Hey, you know what, um, I want to open up some word of prayer this morning, uh, I'm not feeling real hot today, and so, uh, you can be praying for me, uh, I was gonna, one time Francis called me up like two hours before I, he was supposed to go on and said, hey man, I think I'd be better off in bed, and you preaching, and me praying, and I wish I could have done that this morning, but, uh, he's somewhere else, so, couldn't call him, would have been good payback, um, but let's pray, let's open up this morning, Jesus, we love you, and, uh, God, it is such a reminder that uh, your power is perfected in weakness, and this morning I'm relying upon you with everything that I am, that uh, you will be powerful in spite of uh, my weakness. Uh, God, thank you so much. Remind us all in this room, we are weak. We are weak people in dire need of the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. We're in dire need of the power of the Word of God to come in and to dissect our life and to to make us different. And uh, we trust you this morning. I pray that uh, ears would be open and that hearts would be changed, and that uh, that God ultimately, when everything is said and done, this will be completely about you this morning. We love you so much in your precious and we pray. Amen. Well, one of the things, as you guys know, we've been talking about a lot has been the concept of the poor, the lost. Um, and uh, I know way back in, uh, gosh, August now, July even, we kind of started talking about some very difficult subjects, especially around the issue of money. And one of the things I want to do this morning is just kind of take a hiatus away from that for a second because the more that I begin to think through some different things and especially in light of what I'm going to teach on this morning I want to make sure that we understand why we're supposed to give that money why we're supposed to care for the poor why we're supposed to care for the oppressed why we're supposed to to do these different things that we've been preaching on I think we've been trying to say the why but I do want to take a little bit of time this morning and just make sure that we biblically understand why we're calling people to this these radical steps of faith. Let me also say, I am not in any way contradicting anything that we've talked about. I still believe, at the end of the day, I hope there are people that want to tr- want to live a radical life of faith, to learn how to live a life that truly pleases God. I believe God is the boss. I believe that when I came to follow Jesus Christ, I chose to make myself a bond slave, just like James did, and that means when God says jump, my response is how high. When it's, it's God's money, it's God's house, it's God's wife, it's God's children, it's God's car, it's God's everything. And that means right now I'm a steward of all these things that God says, look, I'm boss, but I'm going to give them to you and I'm going to allow you to use them to bring glory to me. And so as we talk through this, make sure you understand, I'm not contradicting anything we've said, but I do want to make sure that we address something important and that's the heart. I'm always concerned that, uh, that we miss why we're doing it and it comes back to this reality of a changed life because of this amazing God that we serve. I never want to lose sight of the fact that we love because God first loved us. I never want to lose sight of the fact that he is supreme. He is the ruler and we are merely the ones now that praise him by how we choose to live out our life. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Open up to 1 Corinthians 13. That's where I want to start and I want to kind of build a case on this whole issue of the heart. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul's been writing to a group of people, and uh, this group of people especially has been struggling with this issue of what's called, the, the Greek word is schismata. It means to, to have a, a tear in, inside of the church. And what was happening was this group of people, they were, they were a church that was tearing apart. And literally in Paul's mind, you could, you could do all these wonderful things, but if your church does not exemplify what we're going to talk about in 1 Corinthians 13, love, it doesn't matter. See, Cornerstone, we could give a quadrillion billion billion, gajillion dollars. We could go crazy doing all these incredible things. But if Cornerstone doesn't exemplify 1 Corinthians 13 in love, it's meaningless. Now, let me let me prove to you my point, what Paul says. Look at verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, and angels don't have a tongue, they speak what we understand. It just means this. In other words, he's creating hyperbole. Even if I could do these incredible things but have not love... He says, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Just making noise is basically all he's saying. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And here's verse 3. Look at this. And this is where I want to kind of look at for a second. If I give all I possess to the poor, if we go and give trillions and lots of money away to the poor, even if I were to surrender my own body to the flames, if I were to become a martyr for the faith, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now let me explain to you that Greek word nothing. What it means is, is nothing. <laughs> literally, I could go through the steps of doing these incredible things and literally at the very end, all that I amounts to is a big, giant, fat zero if there's not love. In Revelation 2, Jesus is talking to this church at Ephesus and as he's speaking to him. he makes sure that they understand, look, you guys are working hard, you're keeping out false teaching, even the Nicolaitans, you're doing all these incredible things. But in verse 4, he comes to a very just sharp and poignant statement. He looks at him and says, but this I have against you. And he says these words that are so striking, you have left your first love. See, I don't want us to ever become a church that just turns into the YMCA. We do all these great things. It was started as a phenomenal organization for the purpose of, of moving people towards Jesus Christ. And all it's turned into now is a bunch of pools and nice afternoon programs. And I'm not anti those. But I don't want Cornerstone to just turn into a relief agency. We're not a relief agency. We are people underneath this amazing God of all the universe. Because he loved us first, we now have this love that's to compel us to love the rest of the world. It has to start here. We can't lose that. Now go with me to uh, to 2 Corinthians 8. Paul's going to talk to a group of people, the same group of people in Corinth, about giving money. Specifically to the church in Jerusalem who's struggling and to encourage the Corinthians, he's going to talk about the church in Macedonia. And this is what Paul says. And now, brothers, I want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Don't miss that. The grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. The Macedonian churches didn't do it. God gave them the grace. Out of the most severe trial, look at this, their overflowing joy, and the Bible says joy must come from God, it must come from a changed heart, and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and look at this, and even beyond their ability entirely on their own, and look at this, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service of the saints. Can you imagine if Cornerstone turned into a place that pled to give its money? In other words, you like went up to, I don't know, whoever it was that's taking the offering and you just grabbed them and you said, Could I please give you my money today? And even not just my money, what I have, my excess, I want to give you even to the point where it's sacrificial. Man, that usher would look at you like freaked out. Just put the money in the basket, man. (laughs) I just passed the plate. Look at verse 5. And they did not do as we expected. And look at this. But before they, they gave to us, look at this. They themselves gave first to the Lord, then to us, in keeping with God's will. Verse 8: I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing you with the earnestness of others. It's this idea that what Paul's getting at is he's trying to poke at the heart of these Corinthians. Look, it's not about the gift, God doesn't need our money. God, if he wanted to, he could He could do whatever in the world that he wants to accomplish, but he chooses to do it through us. And he gives us an opportunity to live out our passionate, fervent love for him amongst people, and he blesses us with gifts, and he blesses us with, with possessions, and he says, now, use it to accomplish. And uniquely, he says in verse 5, my will, not your will. But go from the first John. chapter 4, look at verse 16, by the way, if you need a Bible, I think we have Bibles back there, as you can tell, we're going to be in the Bible a lot today, there's some in the middle, I think there's some over here, Um, if you need a Bible, just feel free to go stand up and get one, we won't yell at you or anything, Um, because I do want you, and by the way, if you don't have a Bible, grab one of those, take it, Um, a gift from, from Cornerstone to you if you don't have one, look at verse 16, And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in him lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Underline that. That is super important to look at that. Look how he says that. Love is made complete among us so that, with the purpose being, we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Do you want to know that you can face God in full confidence? He says, "Look, it starts with love, because in the world we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Why does it do that? Because now we don't face punishment. Those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, He loved us first. Now we're going to love others. We don't face punishment anymore. That's Romans eight one, and the one who fears is is not made perfect, or the one who fears is not made perfect in love. Now look at verse nineteen. This is where I've said it before. We love." Because He first loved us. Don't miss that. That is a profound statement that if if you have an opportunity to learn from it and grow from it, the only love that we have in ourselves comes first from God. The only love that God accepts, in other words, there's all kinds of love going on in the world. Some love that's, that it is wrong and some love that's right. Now, there's, love has become this kind of dirty word in some ways, but there's a correct word in which it's used in which love starts from God. The only love that God accepts is the love that comes from him through us to the world and that's it. Now, look what he says, though. If anyone says, I love God, verse 20, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is what Francis and I have been preaching on. It's impossible to say that I love God and it doesn't turn into love for others. See, once I really understand how much God loved me, I become an overflow of love to the world and to my congregation. I have to begin to grasp that reality. Go with me to Matthew 23. There was a group of guys that kind of messed this up called the Pharisees. Matthew 23. He talks to him. Jesus does, to these Pharisees about their giving. And he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. And then he calls them this. He uses this Greek word, hypocrites, which is, we use our, our, our English word, it's just a translation, hypocrites, you fakes. You give a tenth of your spices, and he calls them mint, dill, and cumin, which means even down to the little spices that you have in your house, down to the most minute detail, you give a a tenth of everything that you have. But look at this. You're willing to do that, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. In other words, it has to start first with a correct heart before I start just doling my money out. You blind guides, you strain out a nap, but swallow a camel. Verse 25. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And this is important. You clean the outside of the cup and dish. In other words, you do all these incredible things. People see you on the outside and you look phenomenal. But inside, they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will be clean. See, what I really want to make sure that we grasp this morning, in the Old Testament, when Samuel went to go find the next person that was to be king of Israel, God wanted him to understand something very, very important. He said, don't look at the outside. I'm after a man, and I'm after a man with a correct heart. See, God understands something. In Hebrew thought, and even in Greek thought, the whole idea of the heart was, is that it's all of me. It's every aspect of me. That means when, if God ever gets my heart, He has every last bit of me. Now all of a sudden, when He has my heart, He has my hands. When He has my heart, He has my eyes. We're going to talk about today, when He has my heart, He's going to have my tongue. But He has my money, He has my possessions. When God has my heart, He has everything. What God is after in your life is He's after your heart. He knows that if that heart of yours ever gets stoked and passionate and it turns into a white heart, fervent love for him, you are going to become a person that's going to become a phenomenal weapon in the hand of an amazing God. That's what he's after in your life. Go with me to uh, John 15. How does he do that? John 15. Look at verse 1. Jesus is saying, and He says, Look, I am the true vine and my Father is the gardener. He's using a a metaphor here to explain to us. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Now that is so important. That's what Francis and I have been talking about. Is that the plant that bears no fruit is the one He's going to cast off and it says He's even going to throw it into the fire and that's, that's a very important statement. While every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes so it'll be more faithful. That's James 1, 2 through 12. In other words, this person that goes through trials, that he allows him to go through it, he's going to make him even more fruitful and more fruitful. Verse 3. And you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me, stay with me, abide in me, and I will remain in you. I will abide in you. No. Let me say that again. No. Let me say it once more. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in me. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains me, I in him, he will bear much fruit apart from me. Here's the theme of what I was talking about earlier. You can do nothing. And by the way, I looked that up in the Greek. It means nothing. Nothing. See, the thing I've learned about teaching is that I can stir a group of people to do a lot of things. I can stir a group of high school students to get all excited and fired up and jump down and spin around and and do all kinds of crazy things. In other words, we love to do that. Even Hitler learned he could move a group of people even to annihilate seven or eight million people of a certain race and and a certain heritage. I just want to make sure that as we teach and as we walk through this stuff that I am not after your, your outside I'm after the word of God and the spirit of God penetrating that aspect of you that only he can get to and changing you in such a way that it makes sure I'm not telling you what to do or Francis isn't telling you what to do but you're getting on your knees and going God, what do you want me to do? That you are so connected to the spirit of God and you're so engrafted into the vine that no matter what he says you will do anything. We'll go to 1 John 4. Go back there. And I'm going to get to the point of teaching here, but just stay with me. Probably wondering how in the world am I going to connect this? Look at verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another. And he's going to say it again. Why? For love comes from God. Everyone who loves, and here's this important word. In James 1.18, if you remember right, it talked about being brought forth or born. He says, everyone who has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love God does not know God because God is love. This is how God loved, showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Now, let me just talk to anybody that doesn't know Jesus Christ, their personal Savior, here for just a second. You can give all of your stuff and you can, there are people all over the world that are giving money like crazy. I think Warren Buffett just gave billions of dollars. In the end, it won't matter how much money you gave when you stand in front of God. Unless a man is born again, John 3, he will never see the kingdom of God. It's not about saying a prayer, it's not about giving money, it's not about doing these things. In Ephesians 2.8 it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. If faith alone, in Christ alone, by God alone, through his word alone, that is the only way you are going to be saved. And so in other words, you can do all these incredible things, you can do works, you can do things that impress all kinds of people, but Jesus said, look, that's just external. I'm not after your externals. I'm after your heart because in Hebrews 11:6 it says look anything not done in faith is actually sin. If I don't do it out of faith in God, God doesn't accept it. Because he says you have to not only come to me and believe that I exist, but you have to believe that I will reward you. Why? Because I did it through you in the first place. He, Ephesians 2:10 we were created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. This is so important. As we talk about this, it must, please hear me, it must come from the changed life that has placed his faith or her faith completely in Christ alone. No good works will save you. In fact, good works in Ephesians 2.9 just says, those are what we can boast about. It must be the work of God in the life of a person that radically transforms him and allows him to love. That's what he was talking about in James one eighteen, and that's what the premise is, is that the person that's been brought forth, that's been born again, is going to live a changed life. And if you're somebody here that claims to be born again and is not living a changed life, you should seriously re-examine your life to even know if you have a faith in Jesus Christ. That is so important. Please hear me. One of my greatest fears, and I know I say that a lot, but I, this, about this very statement is that somebody in this room will be that person that stands in front of God one day, and he looks at him, and he says, look, depart from me, I knew you not. And the person looks back and goes, wait, 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 but I did this in your name, and that in your name, and all these things in your name, and then he looks at him and he says, I was hungry, and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, you didn't give me to drink. I was without clothing, and you didn't clothe me. See, the changed heart, this idea is is that once I understand God's love for me, it pours itself out into love for others. He connects it intimately. And not only is he connected intimately to my actions, but go with me to Matthew 15. Matthew 15. This heart issue is super important. Look at verse 18. This is just a phenomenal statement. Matthew 15, 18. But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. I don't know how many times in counseling somebody's looked at me and said, Yeah, but I didn't mean to say it. Don't say that. Everything that comes out of your mouth, you what? You meant to say. What it is, is anything that comes out, what it should be is once it comes out, you should go, Oh my goodness, that's my heart. Jesus intimately connects back in and he's just going to let us know that look, whatever comes flying out of your mouth, it starts in this place called the heart. Look down at verse 18 again. And these make a man unclean. For out of the heart, it's important, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are are what make a man unclean, but eating unwashed with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. Go with me to Matthew 12, just a couple of pages probably before that in your Bible. Matthew 12, look at verse 34. He's talking to the Pharisees again. And he says, You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart... The mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. But I tell you that, look at this, that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every, every, underline this, every careless word that they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. What he's saying is this, the reason that God can judge us by our mouth is because it's connected to our heart. And that means the only people that God accepts are those that have a good heart, a changed heart. In Ezekiel, it talks about it twice, the fact that God is going to take out this stony heart and put in a heart of flesh, a heart that now has, Jeremiah talks, the the word of God written on it, a changed heart, that now this changed heart gets changed in such a way that what comes out of the mouth now are only things that please God. This is very, very important. It's one of those things, when I mean every, the Bible says every. Trust me, I looked it up in the Greek again. Luke six forty five just talks about the fact that the good man brings out the good stored up in his heart and the evil man brings out the evil things that are stored up. And then it says in this, it says, For out of the overflow of his heart his mouth speaks. And that's why in Proverbs four twenty three, it talks about the fact of protecting the heart because it says it calls it the spring of life. Your most important aspect of who you are that God is after is He's after your heart. Go with me to Matthew 6. That's why this is important. And I taught on this this summer. Matthew 6. Look at verse 21. For, And He's based it on this idea of not storing up treasures on earth but storing up treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is That's where your heart will be also. Look at me. You have got to make God your treasure. You have to. It's this important aspect that every one of us in this room, if God is not our treasure, we will sin all the time. The moment that I grasp onto who God is, what he's doing, and I begin to embrace him, and I begin to know him, and love him, and passionately pursue him, now all of a sudden, he becomes my boss. See, the thing that James is talking about when he says, I am a bond slave, and every one of us that have chosen to follow Jesus Christ is, is we've chosen to be a bond slave. We've taken the all in the ear, and we've chosen because God first loved us that we want to follow him, and we're going to make him our life. I went to a very phenomenal seminary. I loved where I went to school. They taught me how to know and to study and to teach the Word of God. But the one thing that that seminary never taught me that I love what we're doing right now as a church is, is they did teach this thing called lordship salvation, but I'm not even talking just lordship of my my salvation. I'm talking lordship of every aspect of my life. See, once God is my treasure, all these other things begin to melt away. I don't want them so much. And look back down in Matthew 6. Verse 23, or actually verse 24. No one, let me preach that. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot make God and money your boss. And I would say we could put anything into that. You can put money, you can put sex, you can put any, my job, my wife, my kids, you can't serve them both. You can only serve one. One of the things in my house, see this thing? It's remote control. If you have this in my house, you're king. And when I have this in my hands, I have a phenomenal ability. I, I would actually call it possibly a gift or a superpower to watch 20 channels at one time. And everybody that comes into my house hates watching TV with me. Because I can watch four sports channels, three movie channels, the three major networks, the food channel, history channel, discovery channel. I mean, I've got them all going because my wife, who's the exact opposite of me, wastes her life watching 18 minutes of commercials every show she watches. And I pity her. I haven't watched a commercial in the longest time. Now, some of you have ways of doing that, but... See, this amazing thing is is when I have this, I can determine what we're going to watch. When she has it, she gets to determine what we're going to watch. Now, in your life, the thing that God is after, the reason He's after your heart is, is because your heart is the remote control of everything. Once He gets it, He turns on and off everything that He wants to do. And now when we come to James 3, go ahead and go there. James 3. He's going to talk about this thing that Jesus has been talking about, which is the tongue. God is, we're going to find out in the life of a person, if God is God, by how this tongue begins to react. And in verse 2, this is what it says. We all stumble. Now let me say this again. We, no, 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 we, everybody get that? We, and then all, all, good, stumble. Now, let me, let me, I'm going to allow you to do something just in case the person didn't understand that. I want you to look at the person next to you and say, you are a sinner. Go ahead. Just do it. Okay. Okay. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't be judgmental. Don't go. <laughs> Jeez. Some of you took to like two or three people. I said person, Singular. In Ecclesiastes 7.20, in Romans 3.9 and following, and in Romans 7.15 and following, in different places the Bible reminds us that every single one of us, both saved and unsaved, the reality of who we are is we are sinners. It just so happens that we who are saved, Romans 8.1, now no longer face condemnation because we've chosen to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. But we all stumble, and then he's going to say this, in many ways. Now that many ways is in many places, in many times, in many areas. In other words, this group of the room over here may struggle with their mouth, and this group of the room may struggle with something else. This group struggles with depression because they're USC fans, and and this group, (laughs) and this group struggles with pride because they're UCLA fans. In other words, we all stumble in many. (laughs) Look at this. Gosh. All right. Raise your hand if you're a USC fan. Okay, it's okay. Okay, let me just do it once more. Let me start with this. Tell the truth and shame the devil. Who are at USC fans? Go ahead. Okay. See those hands at prayer time? Just lean your hand on, just pray for them, all right? Okay. (laughs) But we all sin in all kinds of ways and in shapes and in forms. And then he comes in and he says this, but, verse 2, If anyone is never at fault in what he says, says. and he's going to say this, look, if, and let's assume it's true, if this person is never at fault in what he says, look what he says about that, he is a perfect man. Now that word does not mean sinless. The NIV has chosen to make that word perfect. And whenever we think perfect, we think, well, God, God is only perfect. That word does not mean perfect in the sense of absolute perfection. It just means mature. Now if I were to go out and I were to go over to the children's ministry and I would grab a baby and put a baby up here and I were to grab an adult man and put an adult man up here, we would be able to know the difference. This one is more mature physically than this one is. All he's saying is is this person that has an ability to control their tongue, this is the man. You can tell the difference by how he handles that hunk of flesh, that piece of muscle in between his his teeth. There's a reality that James is trying to get across. He wants us to understand the mature ones... Those that are mature can control their tongue. And he even goes past that, and he says he's not only able to control his tongue, but he's able to keep his whole body in check. The word that's actually used is of a this idea that this this that he's able to bridle his whole body. He's able to wrap himself around everything. The Bible intimately connects over and over again this idea that once we get mastery of the tongue, we have mastery of the body. Why? It's everything I've talked about because God is master of my heart. Once God has my heart, he's got my tongue, and then James goes a step further and he's got all of me. Now let me give you just some three practical ways that that you can make sure that God is beginning to get a hold of your tongue. Just three practical things. First one. Psalm 119.11 talks about this fact that I've hidden God's word in my heart that I might not sin against him. One of the greatest things that you can begin to do in your life, if you want to be a person that begins to get con- control of your tongue, is to begin to implant God's Word into your heart. How do you do that? Memorize it, read it, talk about it, meditate upon it, think about it over and over and over. Colossians 3.16 says, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Let it stay in you. Let it change you. And watch what God's Word begins to, ch- how it begins to clean the heart. That's the first one. Galatians 2.20. This is what it says. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. One of the greatest things you can ever do, and I don't mean this in an insensitive way, now just hear me out, is every day begin to commit, by your day, by committing spiritual suicide. What do I mean by that? I look at God and say, God, I am dead. The old Todd no longer matters. It's now Christ in me that matters, is the point of Galatians 2.20. See, everybody's trying to build self-esteem, Listen to me, the more you try to convince yourself that you're good, you will be frustrated because we all stumble. Don't try to convince yourself you're good because you're not. You know why I'm good? Because now I have died and Christ is alive in me. That's what makes me good. That's the point of the gospel is that you aren't good enough. Now some people go, well that seems mean. No, that's called the truth. That's what we're going to talk about in verse 1. Second thing. Oh, the other thing is this. Start your day off when God is boss. Wake up in the morning and just look at God and say, God, this is the day that you have made. I'm going to rejoice and be glad. You're boss. I'm slave. I will do nothing unless you tell me to do it. And the first time somebody speaks to you, I dare you to ask God in your head whether or not you should respond to it. The first time, especially if somebody says something awful can you imagine if all of us just stopped and went okay god you want me to respond to this now first of all people would think we were weird but second of all you would never have to take back any word that you've said wouldn't that be great you would never use your hands or, or your your eyes in a wrong way in other words i don't use my hands unless i go okay god your boss these are your hands i don't use them i died they're your hands what do you want me to do which brings me to the next thing, in Galatians five twenty two through 25, it talks about the fact that the fruit of the Spirit is evident, this love, joy, peace, patience, and the last thing it talks about is self-control. So the issue of controlling the tongue is a self-control issue, and it's this idea that I'm looking at God and I'm letting Him change my heart, I'm saying He's boss, and by the way, the next thing then would just be, He says, walk in the Spirit, which just means practice makes mature. I don't want to say perfect. Practice makes mature. In other words, the more that I begin to say, God, this is your tongue. God, these are your hands. God, these are your ears. God, these are your eyes. I begin to live this reality out. It becomes easier and easier to begin to do it. I begin to create good behavior habits that come from a changed heart, not the opposite way around. Now go with me to verse 1. That's what I think he's going to be talking about in James 3.1 is all based upon what I just talked about in verse 2. Not many of you should presume to be teachers. Now, why does he say that? Because the main tool that a teacher uses is his tongue. Up in front of you today, I've hardly used the rest of my body, but one mechanism that's gone over time is my mouth. See, God understands that the person that stands in front of a group of people is saying, thus saith the Lord... Right now, I am a spokesman for God telling you biblical truth. And God wants to make sure that this person that stands in front of you not only has a correct mouth, but more importantly has a correct heart, which is guided by Him. See, if I come up here today, and I, even if I were to be even doctrinally correct, and God doesn't have my heart, it is nothing. Now, does God's word return void? No. God's word is God's word. But in other words, for me to stand in front of you with an incorrect heart is a wrong thing. See, I don't think the issue here alone is a doctrinal issue. In other words, this person that knows the truth exactly how it's supposed to do, because there are a lot of men, the Pharisees, even Jesus said, look, he told them, look, do what the Pharisees say, but not what they do. Because the Pharisees were hypocrites. See, that's what James is actually talking about in this faith without works thing. If you want to find out who a teacher is, I dare you to walk up to him and say, Hey, I was wondering if we could go for a ride and you could drive on the freeway. You'll find out that man's heart. Or play basketball with him. And while you're playing basketball, purposely foul him. And just say, Hey, brother, just trying to find out if your heart was good. (laughs) Watch them. See, this issue that he's talking about here, it is not just about what I stand up in front of you and say. It's more important than that. It's about what comes when I live Monday through Saturday with some of you not even watching me. Why does this matter? Now, one time I got in trouble for using Ted Haggard, okay, and I'm just using him as an illustration. I prayed for him, okay, so nobody be mad at me when I say this. But he is the perfect illustration of a man that got up in front of a group of people and taught. And Monday through Friday, Monday through Saturday, he's doing meth and having homosexual sex. That's a serious thing. That is very, very serious. When I first came to this church, I remember I watched Francis. The greatest thing in the world was the day that I got hired on because then I'm all right, that guy can teach, but can he live? And I watched him and I watched him and I watched him. And finally I took him out for lunch for the whole purpose of just saying, you know what, Francis, Thank you so much that what you teach, you live. I didn't think you were legit. But it was an absolute privilege for me to get to watch your life. See, that's the man I want in front of me teaching. Is I want the man that comes up and he says, Thus saith the Lord, and then he goes out and tries to figure out how to live it. You don't want a guy that's up here just spouting off words and then goes out and lives any old way. Because look down, verse one or verse 1 again. Because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. One of the greatest ways to tear down a church is for the guy that preaches, that tells you what to do, what God's word tells you to do, and then he goes out and lives opposite. It destroys the testimony of Jesus Christ. Not only that, but I do believe that actually what this is speaking about is one day that person will have to stand in front of God and explain why he taught what he taught and didn't live what he lived. The other thing is this. You want men that will stand in front of you and tell you the truth. Now, I know a few weeks ago when Francis spoke on Revelation 3, I'll be real honest with you. I didn't wake up that morning and go, oh, I hope Francis preaches on Revelation 3 in lukewarm. Oh, that'd be so awesome. And I didn't sit there as he taught it and went, oh, that feels so good. A positive message for me and my family to take home and do whatever we want with. no. I understand that what he spoke on that day and some of these messages that we've been speaking on have been very, very difficult. But see, the issue, why God got so mad at the teachers and the prophets of the Old Testament is that they only told sometimes half-truths to the people. I get emails every once in a while saying, Todd, why are you so negative? I try not to be. I smile. I'm only negative when God's word tells me to be negative about something. I believe this is a church, the reason I love this church is that I have the permission to stand in front of you and to teach the word of God and the word of God alone. And if the word of God is negative, that means I need to come to you and be negative. If the word of God is positive, I need to come to you and be positive. But the more and more I read scripture because we all stumble, means God isn't like hunky-dory happy all the time about that because we all stumble you want men in front of you that will teach it and live it and tell you the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth so help them god why because you don't want to be the person that stands in front of god one day and says yeah but 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 i wasn't told that it's the worst thing you could hear not only that here's the other thing go with me to hebrews five, just a couple pages over James says, you shouldn't presume to be teachers. The writer of Hebrews says, in fact, verse 12, by this time you ought to be teachers. Why? Some of us have sat in this room for a long time hearing a lot of messages, haven't we? I mean, I've only been here four and a half years and I think my... If my calculations are right, that comes close to around 500 sermons that I've heard in four and a half years. Or, excuse me, 300. I didn't mean to say 500. Did I tell you I got a degree in math? 300 sermons. Why are there not oodles of people at Cornerstone teaching? Why? Here. Now, let me tell you some things. Right now over in our children's ministry, we have 25, and let me say this clearly, critical needs. We have need of people to go over there and to teach these young people the word of God. But a lot of times, and I understand, it's easier to sit there and just absorb. Good music, good preaching, goodbye, go home, do my life. But many of you in this room ought to be teachers. Yeah, but you don't understand, Todd. My heart's not so good. Okay. Clean the inside of the cup. Do something about it. But Todd, I don't understand the Bible. You know what? Then cool. Right here. <laughs> go take a class. Take, how to st- take Bible study methods. Go sign up today. If you're somebody that doesn't know how to study the Bible, that's why we're offering it, I think, like on Tuesday and Wednesday and Saturday and Sunday. It's like nobody in this room has an excuse not to go over and to learn how to study the Bible. Get over there and do it. They need dire need in the children's ministry. Uh, Christian Burkhart in our fifth and sixth grade needs people to come in and do small groups and our junior high ministry needs help and our high school ministry needs help and our college ministry needs help and everything in between. In other words, if you don't know what to do, go get involved in a small group somewhere and look at the small group leader and go, look. My heart stinks, I'm not teaching yet, and so somehow you're going to be the person that's going to correct this problem using God's word and God's spirit to begin to make me a person so that I can be involved in this church and by love beginning to teach people this amazing God that we have. I desire so much that we get people over there that are so fervently and passionately in love with Jesus Christ that it just radically transforms fourth and third graders. I want to get people involved, with Christian and Bill and all these people so radically that we start teaching people, teaching even little kids, look, it's okay to hate mom and dad and brother and sister and yes, even your own, your, your own life and to take up your cross and follow Jesus Christ. Now we're going to have to explain what we mean by hate. I understand that. But can you imagine what might happen if this church gets serious about the hearts and the minds of people? We ought to be Teachers. And this is a perfect opportunity if you're someone that's sitting on your tail in here. Faith without works is dead. Don't pretend to be a person in here that knows Jesus Christ and sits on your tail and doesn't do anything about it. Please open up that chair for somebody that's going to come in here and come to know Jesus Christ and do something about it. I hope you understand I'm saying that in love. But I'm saying that as I desire to be a pastor that leads his people in the truth. Now, here's the other thing. I grew up in a church back in the Rocky Mountain area, and I didn't come to Christ till I was in college. But there was a lady that every day taught what's called junior church. And I don't really I don't even know if it's out here in California. That's kind of a Rocky Mountain Midwest thing, maybe but they would sing songs in a church and then all the kids would leave and they would go get, get a lesson that's prepared that a kid can understand. They would put it up on flannel graphs and the best way I can explain a flannel graph is it's kind of like PowerPoint minus fun, I don't know. But she would day after Sunday after Sunday for over 50 years, 50 years, she taught and she taught and she taught and they figured it out at her funeral She now has, I think it's close to three or four hundred people that she's influenced into full-time ministry, whether on the mission field, or even in in, in pastoral ministry, or even in in, in national ministry. That woman, you know what she prayed, and I didn't learn this till her funeral. Every time before she would teach, she would beg God that just one of those kids might consider doing something radical for Jesus Christ. And did they? Oh my God gosh, God answered her prayer beyond anything you can imagine. There is a judgment for wrong teaching. But can I tell you something? There's a gigantic blessing for correct teaching. Last night, a guy walked up to me and, you know, and I'm going to offer this. Maybe one of us to come pray today. man. We'll, we'll pray. And by the way, if anybody wants to get baptized, quit. if you haven't been baptized and you claim to be a believer, stop claiming to be a believer until you follow through with that first act of obedience and come get baptized. There, commercial. There we go. Now, a guy walks up to me and he just says, he grabs me, and he goes, can you pray for me? I'm like, sure. So we go in, and he's sitting on the edge of his chair, and he goes, okay, last week I started working over in children's ministry, man. And I went over there, and I'm just thinking I'm just going to kind of go over and play games with kids, and I get there, and they hand me a small group. He goes, it was awesome. Then he looks at me, and he goes, but I don't want to mess up those kids. I was like, dude, I'd hug you, but we're guys, and the door's closed. You know, I was like... Awesome. <laughs> the issue, there is a, a judgment for teaching. But please, man, don't miss the blessing. Those of you that hearts get changed, minds get changed, get out there and start proclaiming how amazing God is. Allow your love and your passion, your fervency for God to change your heart in such a way that you can't help but tell the truth of Jesus Christ to everybody you come into contact with. Amen. Let's pray.